Hey, podcast listeners, this is Greg Dalton. You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. Today, our host, Greg Dalton, is looking into a version of the future being created on the silver screen and in sci-fi fiction. People read dystopias and they think, well, at least it isn't that bad now, or they think at least they're not in a boring suburban life like mine. So there's a lot of complicated things going on with reading stories. In the real world, some scientists are thinking up responses to climate disruption that are wilder than any fiction fantasy. There's just no silver bullet here. These technologies are not going to work if we keep emitting. The only thing that we can think about is this might take the edge off for a while while we finish this energy transition that we have to make. Up next on Climate One. One is changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Claire Schoen. These Climate One conversations, hosted by Greg Dalton, were recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. Today, we look at fact and fiction in our approach to the climate challenge. A handful of scientists want to tinker with the sky in a process called geoengineering. Others call this arrogance. Most Americans simply aren't talking about climate change at all. But Hollywood has noticed. It's rolling out movies depicting a climate catastrophe. Science fiction thrillers describe people resorting to eating bugs after the climate apocalypse. Does fiction help us understand what's really happening? Or does it simply give us a safe outlet so we can ignore the real thing? To explore these questions, Greg talked to renowned science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson, who has written several books about climate disaster, including Antarctica and 40 Signs of Rain. And Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal, who wrote a column on cli-fi, that's climate fiction, for the New York Times. Is truth stranger than fiction? Stay tuned. Jason Mark, tell us how you started to notice climate fiction or cli-fi as an as a emerging genre in film and literature. I cover the environment pretty broadly, which obviously includes climate and energy, and uh, just as a, as a moviegoer, as a novel reader, I just started to notice it popping up more and more. And I thought it was interesting that, that it seemed that what either film directors or in some case novelists were doing was almost using it like background and then, and then staging their story on top of that. And that's in some ways more, more interesting than you know, a, a book about climate change. It was almost like the the future that we're foretelling for ourselves that we can so easily imagine for ourselves. And one of the more recent ones was Interstellar. So let's, let's talk about that. Kim Stanley Robinson, what did you think of, of Interstellar? Well, I really disliked it. I thought it was a pretty dreadful movie in a lot of ways. If you presented it as climate fiction, then the world has a problem. We can't go faster than light. We can't go through wormholes. And even if you granted that bit of magic you would only be able to get a few people away from Earth. So it was as if the filmmakers were saying, since this is a science fiction movie, we can be stupid and get away with it because it's just science fiction. And so I was offended by it because science fiction is actually a very intellectually powerful genre. So this is like a kind of 1930s power fantasy movie, and we're well past that now. Interstellar is about escaping. Some humans escape as eggs, fertilized eggs, I think, to the next planet. Jason Mark, what did you think of Interstellar? I, I thought it was a kind of a horrible movie, not just because of the sort of magical realism around uh, the wormholes and, and traveling faster than light, but the way that um, the director in some ways kind of ham-handedly set up some of the philosophical dilemmas. The science fiction premise is not that Earth's going to be in big trouble. That was just the launching point for the film. The real thing that is, in a way, kind of politically undigestible is that some small fraction of us 
are going to launch off into the next planet. The one percent. Or the, uh, you know, point zero zero one percent. But what about the seven billion rest of us? And in a way, this is kind of like the recurring theme of some of these movies. I thought Snowpiercer, in fact, did that kind of well, because that movie, if anything, had this sort of more interesting class dimension, right? Saying, well, the, the people in the front of the train are all going to party, and the proletariat in the back are going to be eating ground-up bugs um, in these protein bars. So the director's kind of saying there is no escape. You know, we're all on this train rattling around together, and the people in the caboose at some point are going to say enough and, and stage a rebellion, which is kind of what they do. Jason Mark, set that up in terms of geoengineering. and Sure, so I'm sorry for folks who haven't seen the film. The film launches with a botched geoengineering experiment. And this is the idea that we could engage in large-scale, planetary-scale changes to the entire either atmosphere or the oceans. Perhaps we could dump tons of iron filings in the ocean, plankton will gobble up all uh, the CO2, they'll die, they'll drop to the bottom of the seafloor, sequestering lots of carbon in the process. Snowpiercer, I thought, was kind of cool because that film starts out with us overcorrecting and turning Earth into kind of the version of Hoth from, from Empire Strikes Back, right? A giant snow globe. Kim Stanley Robinson, thoughts on geoengineering? If you think that there might be some way out, some silver bullet solution, you'll think to yourself, well, we can go ahead and burn carbon because we have this silver bullet at the end of the game. But some geoengineering methods that have been proposed are clearly dangerous, like seeding the oceans. Even the researchers don't think it's a good idea. What we really need to do is talk about the entire environmental crash that we're causing, and climate change is just one part of that problem. It's a very dark story. Do people really want to read about all that doom and gloom <laughs> stuff? How do you write about it in a way that's not a real downer? I mean, you want to sell books, after all. So both utopias and dystopias are very, very useful, and they're actually pretty popular. Utopia is your hopes. If I do these things and things go right, I'll get to a good state. And dystopia are your fears. If I keep doing these bad things and bad things result, I'll get to this bad state. People read dystopias and they think, well, at least it isn't that bad now. Or they think, <laughs> at least they're not in a boring suburban life like mine. So there's a lot of complicated things going on with reading stories. This year, I believe, is the 40th anniversary of Ecotopia. What, what was that for people who are not so familiar with it? It was a story of a rebellion of Northern California and Southern Oregon. And there, things were just being done in an environmentally conscious way with the best technology of the uh, 1970s. And it was a very inspirational book. It changed people's lives. It changed their thinking. I think what it was was the 60s generation was growing up and thinking, how do I live my ideals? How do I take care of my kids? So Ecotopia didn't know about the Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. Right. There's an author, George Marshall, and he wrote that cli-fi will reinforce existing views rather than shift them. Jason Mark, do you think that climate fiction will change people's minds or perhaps harden them? We know that confirmation bias works right. American Sniper is bigger in the South and in Texas and in parts of the West than New York and California, right? People go to see the art or the entertainment that perhaps is already speaking stories they want to hear. But I do have a hope that maybe it could come in sort of at a 45-degree angle. It comes from your peripheral vision. You don't have your intellectual guard up, and who knows? It might get them to maybe think about things a little differently. Kim Stanley Robinson? It's a very emotional business, and once you get to the emotional level, you begin to process in a different way than you do when you're reading the news in a more cognitive sense. That's the magic of art. We're talking about climate fiction and climate one. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Kim Stanley Robinson, the science fiction author, and Jason Mark, editor of the Earth Island Journal. Kim Stanley Robinson, I'd like to get your view on a book that was quite influential, Michael Crichton's State of Fear, hmm. which really attacked environmentalists basically said climate change is bunk. What did you think of that book? Well, I thought that was a dreadful novel. And this is the thing. As a work of art, you couldn't believe a single sentence of it. The scenes it was presenting were unbelievable just on the strict sense of do people do this in the real world that I know. And no, they don't. There's a scene in one of your novels where there's some scientists working at the National Science Foundation, and they wrestle with something, whether they should go outside the parameters of their scientific discipline and become advocates and become activists. And I think some scientists today wrestle with that boundary. The scientific community has been shocked. Around 2002, they raised their hand and they said, folks, world, the biosphere is burning down, something needs to be done. And they were ignored. 
And capitalism just rolled on saying, we need profits, we need shareholder value, we'll strip mine the world. What happens 100 years from now is somebody else's business, but I have a fiduciary responsibility to do everything I can to maximize profit. And the scientific community said, but wait, you know, the, the biosphere actually is our physical infrastructure. We live off of it. We can't do without it. If you destroy it, you can't pay to replace it later. These are all fantasies. And so we actually need to deal now. And now, I think in the last five years or so, you've seen more and more scientists and more and more scientific organizations trying to make something more vigorous than raising their hand at the back of the room and saying, we've got a problem. And, and not limited to climate, right? It's, it's, it could be vaccinations. It could be evolution. It could be a lot of different things, in which there's a, there's a pretty strong undercurrent. And in fact... There's a number of people in this country whose confirmation bias when it comes to climate change reaffirms their belief that we may be living in the end times. The it's, rapture is coming. The rapture is coming. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like 20, 30 percent of Americans think that climate change could be a symbol of that. Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, derecho, polar vortex, atmospheric rivers. I never heard of these terms a few years ago, and yeah. now they're part of our everyday knowledge. So how do you see the language changing as sort of severe weather becomes part of our daily life? I've been noticing that myself, and I think it's fascinating, this atmospheric river that in California has become the latest word. I I think we used to call it Pineapple Express. And it's kind of an El Nino effect, but we're seeing them now, uh, what I think used to be called a a storm is now (laughs) called an atmosphere. Rain. It used to be called rain. Rain. So I like it. I like it because it, it, it's, it, uh, it's, it, it's, it's scientific. Science is always making up new words, mostly out of Greek and Latin, in order to be a little more precise about the physical world. So an atmospheric river is a metaphor, right? But it's a very powerful and clear metaphor as to what's going on across the Pacific. And polar vortex is one that didn't exist when I wrote 40 Signs of Rain, and now I, I see it come into being. So that'll keep happening, I think. Jason Mark? Those are sort of like creations of the producers at CNN in some ways, right? <laughs> I mean, it seems like, especially if you, if you watch cable news or you follow the, the Twitterati, so much churn about, oh my God, this blizzard's going to hit New York, and then it's kind of like a nothing sandwich. But perhaps it is because there have been some extremes that have been truly, I think, frightening to people. Climate change is going to be good for the Weather Channel. You used a phrase in your New York Times article of storm porn, right? It's become the new sort of, you know, disaster show on cable TV. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. My name is Raymond Welch. I'm the author of a cli-fi book called A Change in the Weather. It's a story of a family who gets caught up in an America turned upside down because the jet stream changes so radically that the seasonal highs and lows shift around the globe and agriculture fails. I wonder if you agree with me that the imminence of climate change is much closer than people think. My book occurs in 10 years. Jason Mark? Yes, I mean, we could hit a sudden tipping point that would ruin some harvest, and that would get people's attention real quick. I think what's interesting is the way in which the large agribusiness companies have paid very close attention to climate change, have made a lot of investments in startup companies that are doing weather forecasting, and they're seeing it, and their clients and or their vendors, right, that are either you know selling or growing these bulk commodities are seeing it as well. We had rationing of rice at Costco just, what, five or six years ago when there was big Australian droughts hit the rice market globally. People forget. Let's go to our next question. My name is Jessica Lovering, and I work in an environmental think tank, but I study nuclear power to mitigate climate change. And the reason I mention that is that I also run a very large dystopian book club in San Francisco. And Mm. We've noted that 50 years ago, a lot of the post-apocalyptic fiction was very nuclear war-focused. But now there's a lot of dystopian fiction about climate change. And it seems like for my generation, that's the big existential threat. So do you think that's going to make people change how they feel about other risks like GMOs or nuclear power or other things? Kim Stanley Robinson. Amory Lovin says that we're already so close to really excellent clean energy that we don't need nuclear. We can just go straight to the forms of clean energy. But energy is important. We waste it like crazy, 12,000 watts a year for Americans. In the developing world, energy means refrigeration means health. So we need energy bad, and we can't just say, let's not have energy. So uh, nuclear, maybe it's a bridge, maybe it's unnecessary. I, I have never read a really good analysis. Greg Dalton has been talking about fiction and fantasy with sci-fi writer Kim Stanley Robinson and journalist Jason Mark. 
Free podcasts of this and other Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You're listening to Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Burning fossil fuels has disrupted the Earth's operating system. Can humans fiddle with the system to bring it back into balance? That's the notion of geoengineering. There are all kinds of geoengineering ideas being proposed, from seeding the oceans with iron chips to burying CO2 in tunnels deep underground to whitening the clouds up above. Will any of this actually stop the planet from warming? Or is it all a distraction from the hard work of transitioning to a green energy future? Talking about this with Greg is Ken Caldera, an atmospheric scientist at the Carnegie Institute for Science at Stanford. Albert Lin, a professor at UC Davis School of Law, where he studies governance of geoengineering research. Jane Long, co-chair of the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, and Armand Nukermans, a physicist and inventor involved in geoengineering. Armand Nukermans, explain for us simply what we're talking about, spraying mist into the air that reflects the sun back. Well, this is a relatively simple idea that basically you use the you know, the clouds like a mirror. And, you know, I'm, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, so there's room for some discussion here. But anyway, so if I take milk, it looks very white. And if I dilute it, then it gets gray. And there's nothing white or gray in that whole milk. There's water and there's little droplets of fat in it. And the combination of multiple scattering gives you that color. So what happens in the clouds that are um, gray, they don't have very many droplets, or they're quite big. And so the idea is that if you can help by a natural means to bring more droplets in there, nuclei as they call it, they will become droplets too, and you'll have more scattering. So it will look lighter. So clouds right. are mirrors. You can make the mirrors stronger and reflect more mm-hmm. heat, uh, bounce it back into the atmosphere, and yeah. it won't warm into the space. earth into, into space. space. And Ken Caldera, if we started this geoengineering and painting the sky and putting aerosols and making clouds brighter so they reflect heat up into the atmosphere and cool the earth, once that started, if it stopped, what happens? If a system were deployed full scale and then stopped right away, it would be a lot like a volcanic eruption, which puts material into the sky and then it falls out. If you kept doing it for a few decades and it was masking lots of warming, as soon as you stopped, all that masked warming would come at you pretty rapidly, and so you'd see very rapid warming. And so there would be incentive to try to phase it out slowly if it wasn't working. You wouldn't want to turn it off all at once. This sounds like playing God. Who gets to play God? I think the concern comes with our ideas about our relationship with nature. We like to think, and maybe we would like for the world to be basically a natural place where we carve out a little man-made part in this natural world. And this idea that humans are managing the entire planet and there's fundamentally no more nature is a concept that we need to grapple with and I think is disturbing to people, and rightfully so. Man's dominion. Albert Lin. The question is, of course, who would do this? And ultimately, ideally, this decision would be made by the international community, by humanity as a whole. Um, how would that be made, though? There's, there's all sorts of questions regarding what well, could one country do it on its own or even uh, an individual. So uh, all sorts of difficult questions regarding how you would actually manage a scheme like this, even if you could somehow agree to go forward with it. Ken Caldera, how much research is happening now, today? Who's tinkering with the atmosphere? We're all tinkering with the atmosphere with our greenhouse gas emissions. But, Anyone who but, drove here driving in their car now is tinkering with their atmosphere, yeah. fair enough. But no, nobody is intentionally trying uh, to alter the atmosphere, and nobody is now engaged in any outdoor experimentation with geoengineering. Alan, you say that researchers are waiting for a social license. What, what does that mean to get a social license to go forward? Uh, We have a growing number of researchers who are interested in doing some field experiments, 
But at this point, um, they've held off on going forward because of this sense that they don't have yet a social license. Uh, they're concerned that whatever research is produced, the research results are uh, legitimate and will be accepted as uh, legitimate. So I see that a Jane little. Long. I see that a little differently. I think there's quite a few people who are ready to do small-scale, very low-risk experiments that are looking at the mechanisms by which particles form and how they reflect and and whether or not they impact the ozone or other things that would be deleterious, they're ready to go, but there's no money. There's no funding for these projects. It's the government that is holding back on the social license. Ken Caldera, you're part of a group that's funded by Bill Gates. There is money there, so what's going on with his money? Bill Gates has created a small fund known as the Fund for Innovative Climate and Energy Research and because the government's not funding, he stepped in to support some small amount of work doing computer modeling and laboratory experiments. Jane Long, what do you think about for-profit or private funding of this type of research? The kinds of thought experiments and workshops and things that are being done uh, through private funding, I have no problem. But once we get to an outdoor research project, you very quickly want to see that become programmatic and become strategic because you wouldn't want that kind of research to be done unless it was publicly available, publicly governed, and, and that was totally transparent to everyone in the public about what was being done and why it was being done. So just because somebody's curious about something, you don't want to see that funded. Alan, what do you think about private funding and sort of for-profit motivation and how this could be governed? Uh, some of you may be familiar with an incident a couple of years ago where uh, an American businessman undertook an ocean iron fertilization project out in the Pacific, uh, and that was funded by a, a Native American tribe uh, up in Canada, which was actually seeking enhanced salmon runs, but you know, arguably uh, it was also a type of geoengineering research which was done without uh, public oversight and public accountability, and there's, there's a lot of concerns uh, about what that could lead to because uh, of the possibility that ultimately some of these activities could be undertaken without public say, without say by government over uh, what goes on. Ken Caldera? No sensible person would invest in solar geoengineering with the intent of making money. It's likely many decades away. Uh, you know, there's all these other controversies associated with it. Could they do it for ego or power? You get a couple billion, you get kind of bored. What are you going to do, you know, with your money? Those are, those are real issues. I think they're, they're all different kinds of vested interests, not just making money. And, and protecting society against those vested interests is very important. Look, quite frankly, a lot of the science, even academic, you know, is already funded by private. But if you're going to do an experiment, okay, you need the approval of a, of a very competent body. Whoever is going to fund it, that's something else. And so let me give you an example. What we're making is a, sort of like a snowblower, but the particles, the droplets that come out are a thousand times smaller. Okay? So the University of Washington, as was always the plan, is taking this over. And what it really comes down to is that we take each one of these sprayers, sprays a half a glass, a half a glass of seawater. Okay? That's what it does. All right? Would you need permission to do that normally? But in the interest of the controversy, we will seek permission and say, this is the test. You have to have total transparency because of what's happened in the past. Uh, a lot of this backdrop came out of some of the people involved in the nuclear age. What if this technology, Alan, gets in the hands of a rogue state or a group that is not as well-intentioned? You know, could this technology spread like nuclear technology and get in the wrong hands? Albert Lynn? Just as nuclear could be used peacefully for energy and then for weapons purposes, similarly, uh, you could see some of the technology that's being developed here potentially being used in a military way or at least in a way to disadvantage one's neighbors uh, whom um, one disagrees with. So there's the possibility of that dual use or the possibility of misuse. So I think it's really different than nuclear technology, right? Nuclear technology, when you wanted to learn how to make a bomb, the technology was uh, extremely sophisticated and, and difficult. Here, the technology is actually kind of simple. I mean, people have known for a long time that when volcanoes erupt, they put sulfur in the stratosphere and that cools the earth. It's not that difficult to understand that that technology works. Albert Lynn? Ultimately, we move down this road 
where we've created uh, vested constituencies, whether it's companies or scientific communities, that are interested in going forward because they have a personal financial or professional stake uh, in moving forward with the actual deployment and not just the research. I think that's a very real danger we have to uh, be aware of and be concerned with, uh, assuming that research, field research does go forward. We're talking about geoengineering or painting the sky to fight climate change. Joining us here are Albert Lin from the UC Davis School of Law, Ken Calderas, the climate scientist at the Carnegie Institution for Science at Stanford, Jane Long from the Task Force on Geoengineering at the Bipartisan Policy Center, and Armand Neukerman, a physicist and inventor. I'm Greg Dalton. Jane Long, once funding starts flowing to universities and labs, they want to keep that money That's flowing. Right. They want to see their right. papers published, and they have a career staked on that success. That's right. These are the, some of the more difficult vested interest problems we have. We also have people that just really want to save the world, and I'm really glad they do, and they want to come up with good ideas, but they need to be checked. Eventually, if you keep pursuing this, you're going to have to have some institutional controls And you're going to have to reward people for saying this is a really bad idea and we shouldn't do it. Let's talk about some of the regional impacts. Ken Caldera, what are some of the ways that this could be done at a regional scale in California, the southwestern U.S.? It's possible that whitening the clouds in the Pacific off of Los Angeles or San Francisco could help bring moist, cool air into the desert southwest, or the, there's coastal fog is going away with global warming, and that's threatening the coastal redwoods, and it's possible that these approaches could bring more uh, clouds and fog into the coastal redwoods. And so this cloud brightening idea has potential for regional scale alterations of climate, but nobody has yet even begun investigating I, I that. Wanna, I really want to second that. The idea that we're going to get specific local regional climate problems and people are going to push very hard to deal with these heat waves or we're losing our crops or we're losing our redwoods, these things are, I think are going to become very palpable and I think they will drive a need for technology that really hasn't been invented. And there's no program now that looks at what you might call extreme adaptation. And yet the governance of that type of activity is probably a lot easier. So if every year you get a heat wave and it's a little longer and it's a little hotter, somebody's going to want you to do something about it and there's going to be a huge amount of pressure. Ken Caldera? I think there's often an assumption that deployment of these technologies will be widely unpopular. But I I was at a meeting where uh, there was a fellow there from Ghana who stood up and said, if we're having crop failures and we think that putting aerosols in the stratosphere can cool the weather and allow us to grow our crops, we would be all in favor of it. So does the possibility, Jane Long, of a quick technological fix mean that we can go about our carbon-intensive lives and keep driving big cars and flying around and eating steak and like, well, well, you know, I can take a pill later. I don't have to diet. I can get gastric bypass surgery or whatever it is. There's just no silver bullet here. Basically, these technologies are not going to work if we keep emitting. I think one of the most important things about climate science that most people don't understand is that all that carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere stays there for a really, really long time, like a thousand years before it decays. And so if we stop tomorrow, if we stop emitting tomorrow, we still have everything that we've put up there to deal with, which is continuing to warm the earth. So if you keep emitting and you keep emitting, you can't keep up with it with any of these technologies. The only thing that we can think about is this might take the edge off for a while while we finish this energy transition that we have to make. But the first thing and the most important thing is energy transition. If you don't do that, nothing else is going to work. Albert Lin? I think it's important that geoengineering, if it's done, that it's done in a way that is explained for what it is that the flaws are made clearly apparent. I mean, all of these Mm -hmm. proposed techniques have their limitations, and in particular, the ones that seek to deflect radiation do nothing about greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere and therefore wouldn't deal with uh, the problem of the increasing acidification of uh, the oceans. And it's, it's very easy to say, well, we are working on this thing, this 
geoengineering, we're doing more research, and when the research comes, we'll fix the problem. And it's much easier to say that than to say, well, we need to do this energy transition much sooner, and we need to invest the money up front. But the fact is, even having this conversation is controversial in some quarters. Some people think, don't talk about it, because if you talk about it, it might happen. That would be bad, so shut up. There are people who think that this conversation is a distraction away from the more important conversation about how do we change our energy system. But I, I think it really motivates the discussion about changing our energy system because if you think about these solar geoengineering options, you recognize that if we continue dumping our greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and forever put more and more aerosols in the sky, that that's an ugly, ugly end game. And, and so these things don't get you out of the need to change our energy system. And I think the hopeful part is that it's within our technological capability to build an energy system that's consistent with environmental principles and that it's not that expensive and it's not really that hard to do. Economists estimate it would cost a few percent of GDP, which would be maybe a quarter of the military budget or 10 or 20 percent of the health care budget. So it's Solving this problem is smaller than other things we're already engaged in, and we can do it if we can develop the political will to do it. We're talking about painting the sky at Climate One. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome. Given the pace of research and what we saw in cloud seeding the tendency for charlatans or snake oil salesmen to get involved in a business like that, is it likely that any attempt at geoengineering will come from that angle first on a reasonable scale and destroy the reputation of it before we even have the option of addressing the real climate issue? Huckster is getting into geoengineering. That's, uh... <laughs> I think it's possible, but I think there's a lot of things that are futures that are possible. So imagine that the world becomes a place where the enemy is climate change and the military is out there fighting the enemy. I mean, maybe that'll happen too. I have no idea. Next question, welcome. I'm curious, are these radical schemes being funded by the fossil fuel industry? No. No? Albert Lynn? Uh, There is a concern that they have an incentive to support these sorts of schemes or ultimately deployment. Because it allows them to continue continue business business as usual. Continue business as usual and profits as usual. So oil companies probably not uh, fighting geoengineering. It helps them continue this business model longer. I think if they could fund it and get away with it, they might, but I think they realize it would be a public relations disaster. They'll say things. You know, like the president of Exxon said that climate change is just an engineering problem and we'll get over it. And they say things that make them suspicious. Let's go to our next audience question at Climate One. Welcome. Hi, my name is Gerald Harris. Um, The real silver bullet, as we all know, is a carbon tax. If you raise a carbon tax (laughs) to $150 a ton, you will quickly take a lot of carbon out of the system. You will quickly generate the kind of economic change and technological innovation that we need to do this. Most climate models forecast those kind of temperature changes 50 to 100 years out. 50 to 100 years is a lot of time for technological change and and energy efficiency in a lot of other areas. So I want to push back against some of the scare tactics I'm hearing up there. I'd like to tackle that. Ken Kildare? Well, you know... I think we all agree that an energy system transition towards a clean energy system is what we need. Even in terms of research dollars, at least 99 cents of every dollar should be going towards an energy system transition, and this should be a little minor component. So I think we would be happy to be here talking about the need for energy system transition without even mentioning geoengineering. You're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's primarily about carbon, and we have to focus our policies on carbon, and we need a price for carbon. And if we don't do that, there's nothing else there. Greg Dalton has been discussing the pros and cons of geoengineering our warming world with Ken Caldera from the Carnegie Institute for Science at Stanford, Albert Lin, professor at UC Davis School of Law, Jane Long from the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, and Armand Nukermans, a physicist and inventor. Let us know on Twitter what you think about geoengineering. Our handle is at Climate One. You're listening to Climate One with Greg Dalton. Miss Manners would say there are three topics you shouldn't discuss at a dinner party, politics, religion, and climate change. A lot of folks think it's just not a polite topic of conversation. 
But if we don't talk about climate disruption, how are we going to fix it? Greg's next guests explore our habits and behavior that keep this essential topic taboo and what we can do to change it. Per Espen Stokness is an economist and psychologist. He wrote the book, What We Think About When We Try Not to Think About Global Warming. George Lakoff is professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley and an author of many books, including Don't Think of an Elephant. And Kari Norgard is associate professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. She's the author of Living in Denial. Here's our conversation about talking and not talking about climate change. There's been a mountain of evidence, and yet Kari Norgard, a lot of people are just going about like, well, it's a long-term problem, yeah. The response is not commensurate with the challenge. Why not? Yeah, Why are we doing more with so much evidence? I mean, it's an incredible situation. It's the most serious, um, very complex problem. It's threatening to you know, our fossil fuel-based economy. It's threatening to our political systems. It's threatening to our sense of the future, meaning, cultural norms, so many different things. And you think about a threat that significant, you know, what, what do we even do? How would we respond? So the guilt that comes up in association with thinking about climate change, fear about the future, a sense of helplessness and... So my work has been really about the way that emotions shape how we respond, but not just in a psychological sense, but as a sociologist, thinking about emotions in a social context. So the fact that we haven't seen our political leadership be able to take strong stands, the fact that we don't see a lot of other people who appear to be concerned makes people feel more sense of fear and helplessness. George Lakoff, why don't facts move people more? If you have a certain worldview that doesn't allow you to see the facts, you won't see them. And the reason is very simple. When you perceive something, something comes into your eyes, you have about a tenth of a second before it becomes conscious, and it will change in that tenth of a second to fit what you already know or believe. So when you have facts that come in that won't fit the way that you understand the world, then the facts will either be ignored, ridiculed, or attacked, because they will threaten the way you understand the world. And so you have lots of people in this country who have conservative worldviews, and they just don't see it. It's not like they're denying it. It's not like they, oh, I know that fact, and I'm going to deny it. It's like it's not even a fact. So some people can look at Superstorm Sandy, Haiyan, Katrina, its forest fires, and reach totally different conclusions. Paris Ben-Stokness? The climate issue as such is portrayed as very distant to us by uh, talking about the year 2100 or using phrases such as the scenario RCP 8.5, as if that would help to get, the, <laughs> get it across. Uh, and People are we, terrified in the audience. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> RCP 8.5, right? <laughs> so, you know, using also images of, of glaciers melting, Arctic ice and cyclones far off. Uh, so it's distant in time, distant in space, and then distance in social impacts. It's always impacting somebody else that I don't know, or I don't even know anybody that knows them. And we know that empathy is decreasing with increasing social distance. And finally, leaders haven't done anything and I can't influence them so it just all this distancing just creates an immense sense of this being beyond my scope of influence. George Lakoff? There's a distinction between direct causation and systemic causation. Global warming will create snowstorms because of systemic causation. It gets hotter over the Pacific, you know, the, you get more moisture, lots more energy, the jet stream brings it over North Pole, comes down over the East Coast as snow in the winter. Okay, huge snowstorms, and the Washington conservatives say, what do you mean global warming? It's snowing more than ever. But they're missing that. There's interacting causes. There are feedback loops and probabilistic causes. That has to be taught, and this is very important. There is no public discourse around systemic causation, especially among climate scientists. If you poll people in a period where it's cold weather, then there isn't really any belief in global warming. And if there's been hot weather for some time, then the belief in human-caused global warming is very high. And so in the absence of these more longer-term systemic causation frames that George is talking about, we are left with this, shall we say, shortcut thinking 
Kari Norgard, you write that we think about deniers as people who say, oh, Al Gore made it up, but there's many shades of denial. So tell us about the shades of denial within climate believers. <laughs> I think a much more serious problem is the way that the majority of people who do understand that climate change is happening aren't taking more action on it. Just try bringing up climate change in a conversation and see what happens. There's so many different ways that people will change the subject. And, <laughs> and why is that? It's disturbing to think about, and uh, we don't want to burden each other with it. We want to have a nice day. Maybe you're in the middle of trying to do something else. And so we have all these ways that we push it to the side. And through this, we are actually kind of unable to imagine what is real because we're creating this safety zone. Skeptics can be scapegoats. It's easy to blame oil companies or skeptics. That's the problem. I'm not the problem. It's someone else. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely think this is a huge... I mean, because it's much easier to point the finger at someone else or to say the real problem is China or these kinds of things rather than to you know, look at the more complex situation that we have in terms of how do we move forward? How do I, as an individual, use my position strategically to really create change? George Lakoff? Political action is absolutely crucial, and also that this is a matter of institutional infrastructure. One of the things that's denied, along with global warming, is the fact that in American democracy, the way it was built, citizens care about each other, act through their government to provide public resources for everybody. And those public resources have to do with taking care of nature, and that is crucial. That is what this is about. It's not about, quote, government. It's about everything that's private depends upon the public. Paris Ben-Stokens. Individual actions will never solve the climate problem. However, it does have huge social ripple effects. So by really acting on this, and then maybe even getting acknowledgement from others that we are acting, this reinforces the social norms and reinforces the frames that this does matter. So it does have a social, cultural effect, even if individual action will never solve the climate problem itself. You write in your book about Sean Hannity. Tell us that story about if Sean Hannity suddenly became a climate evangelist, how he would suffer. <laughs> yeah. So our attitudes are both embedded in an internal worldview, but it's also embedded in social networks. So let's say Sean Hannity came out and said, global warming is the greatest threat that humankind is facing. People will start to call in, his sponsors will withdraw their support. There is no immediate benefit to Sean Hannity doing that, but there is an immediate and large social cost, which is felt right away. And Kari Norgard, we hear about a lot of Republicans who privately acknowledge the existence of climate change. They won't say it publicly because they'll get voted out of office. Yeah, I mean, this is very much the idea in sociology of a social fact. You know, there's no law that tells you that you can't do something. But nonetheless, there are social ramifications, social pressures. We are very social beings, and it matters what happens around us. And this is a very real social pressure that happens at the, you know, at the interpersonal level. George Lakoff? It's more than that. Suppose you take the, the question of the drought. It's not a question of water. It's a question of global warming. People tend to separate out issues as if the drought were separate from global warming. The effects of beef on the climate is huge, but people don't think of beef as a cause of global warming. It's not discussed. In general, because you separate out issues as if they were issue by issue and not connected, you're not going to discuss them as global warming issues. We're talking at Climate One about the psychology and the mind of climate change with Per Espen Stokness, economist and psychologist, George Lakoff from Cal, and Kari Norgard from the University of Oregon. I'm Greg Dalton. The drought is interesting because we've seen a lot of action recently on the drought, perhaps even more than climate, because Kari Norgard, water is more real and tangible for people than this gas that we can't see, pollution in the sky, things that are global. Water is, by its nature, a very local resource. That's the thing, though, is that we haven't had a discourse about what climate change really is in specific places in our lives, you know, thinking about how real estate prices will be affected by climate change, thinking about how asthma rates will be affected by climate change. You know, climate change is going to be different in different places. So in my hometown, 
the things that climate change will look like are going to be different than in Oslo. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we need to have discourses about what it means in our place, how the things that we are seeing are about climate change. And that, I think, helps to make it real and helps to motivate people. That's interesting. A lot of people say talk is just more hot air, and you're saying that talk matters. As a host of a talk show, I'm happy to hear this. The um, people <laughs> need, because uh, a lot of people in climate just say action, 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 and you're saying talk matters because it's how we understand and how we normalize it and say it's okay to talk about it. Absolutely. This is how people develop a sense of what's real, what's normal, what's happening, what could be done about it. It's, you know, the starting point of solidarity of some kind, of, of having a political imagination, um, but even talking amongst families and friends and these kinds of things, and then it can go on from there. A lot of campaigns, campaigns at the ballot box, environmental campaigns, are focused on banning plastic bags, banning water, plastic water bottles, banning the Keystone XL pipeline, banning fracking. Mm-hmm. Kari Norgard, are those kinds of things helpful in building social movements, as we saw with uh, slavery, suffrage, etc.? Are they just convenient well, tactics? None of us can work on everything. It's kind of, you know, it's too general. So we, we do need to be putting our attention into certain things. And there's going to be issues that are distinct, right? But we do need to understand that these are all interconnected. And certainly the the discourse that we have had, you know, the lack of discourse of these interconnections is... Um, is a big part of why climate change doesn't feel real. That's what Climate One is about, connecting the dots. Perez Ben-Stokness. Yeah, we need these conversations, but we also need to have them in new ways that really makes it personal, near, urgent, and here. We need to speak about risk management. We pay for fire insurance. We pay for defense. We should pay a little bit of climate insurance, not because we know the world is going to burn down, but because it's simply smart to be prepared. And the moral frame, and this ethical and religious So we see framing of it is now coming out very strongly with the Pope's engagement in the encyclical. And the last one is the opportunity frame. Thousands of billions of dollars are going to be made and shifted in the restructuring of the economic system. So health, risk, morals, and opportunities. These are the ways to speak about the climate. We had a person stand up at a Climate One event recently who said... Americans like food, sex, and fun. And get those three things into climate, they'll have to get Americans on, <laughs> on, on board. board. I'm on, on board. board. <laughs> George Lakoff? I've been talking about moral politics for 20 years now. Hmm. And, and it's, that's really the basis of our political life and the basis of who you are. This is a moral issue. It is the moral issue of our time. Barack Obama actually said that once. And, <laughs> or maybe twice, but... He did something that was not very moral with respect to drilling in the Arctic. But along with morality comes the issue of responsibility. You know, it's not like you are going to change the world by recycling. But taking responsibility, you know, in your conversation, in your connection to other people, is part of a contributory responsibility. And it has a political effect. And it's a political effect because when you act in a way that other people will understand conceptually. It changes how they think. And people act based on how they think and understand the world. We're going to invite you to join the conversation. Welcome to Climate One. All the scientists that I've read about and and talked to say that we have to, in a massive way, drop fossil fuels and do renewables. I don't see any connection between what's being talked about here and that. Uh, uh, There is action and then there's action. Perez Ben-Stokeness. What is needed is to at least halve carbon emissions by 2050 and at the same time grow the economy. And the good news is that this is fully possible if all parts of the economy decarbonize at a rate of at least 5% per year. And we are talking about the social premises to build bottom-up support to force that. It's quite easy to solve the climate problem. You slam a price on carbon and redistribute it to the people. We all know that, but why don't we do it? And the reason are the social barriers, and that's what we're discussing. How to remove the social barriers so we can do the quick enough decarbonization of the economy that we know are needed and is technically feasible. We just need to decide and agree to accelerate it. It is happening. It's a political problem, not a technological problem. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. You spoke about how the facts about climate change oftentimes become invisible to people that have this conservative worldview and the various frames that that worldview invokes. So 
is there a way of communicating this issue that is commensurable with that worldview that can actually exist within that framework? Paris Ben Stokens? Yeah, I think it's fully possible to argue in terms of the energy transition that we're in, in frames that are conservatively aligned. For instance, that the distributed generation of solar and wind is all about free market competition. So it's all about property rights, it's about economic development, innovation, enterprise, cutting red tape for new energy, reducing unfair subsidies, and finally improving the consumer choice. So rather than having one monopolistic utility, you have the opportunity of free market energy. So there are several ways we can speak about this that would make it more compatible. Last question. Um, yeah, my question has to do with framing the debate um, specifically about two degrees Celsius and the way that has sort of become a number that we've grasped onto. And I'm wondering if framing the debate around that number is helping the cause or is actually getting people to think that we have a larger carbon budget that might be safe in the future and is hindering our ability to really take the sort of drastic measures that we need to redirect the economy in order to solve this It's problem. getting in the way. It's getting in the way because people don't think in terms of two degrees. We should explain two degrees Celsius is the amount of warming the world. Governments have said we should not go beyond. Exactly. But the point is people don't think in terms of those. They think in terms of what's right. Mm -hmm. They think in terms of issues of health. They think in terms of those kinds of issues. Perez Benstokness. The two degrees. I think it's a useful compromise among negotiating parties. However, it's not a vision that we need. The vision we need is something more aligned with 2050, 9 billion people living well within the limits of the planet. Greg Dalton has been discussing how we think about climate change. We heard from Per Espen Stokness, an economist and psychologist, George Lakoff, professor of linguistics at UC Berkeley, and Kari Norgard, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Oregon. Free podcasts of all our Climate One conversations are available on our website at climateone.org. You'll also find video clips, photos, and more. Please join us next time for another Climate One discussion about powering America's future. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California. Greg Dalton is our executive producer and host. Jayman Chen is the producer. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineers are John Rieger with help from Will Llewellyn. I'm Claire Schoen, the editor. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.